We now continue in the book The Atonement by Arthur W. Pink, and we are continuing in chapter 17, The Atonement, It Results, Righteousness Continues. Again, it has been objected that such a thing as vicarious obedience to the transferring of moral merits from one to another is quite unknown in human history. Part of that. That only goes to prove the uniqueness of Christ's work. Many things which are impossible to man are possible to God. Those who refuse to believe in the vicarious obedience of Christ, parenthesis, most probably to their own eternal damnation, because of its unprecedented character, have the same ground for rejecting his miraculous birth. His impeccability, parenthesis, incapableness of yielding himself to temptation, his unique life, his raising himself from the dead, for none of these have any parallel in human history either, but this particular objection overlooks entirely the unique relation which existed between Christ and his people, namely their federal union in the eyes of God's law, what Christ did, his people did. For as by one man's disobedience many were made, parenthesis, legally constituted, as in Second Corinthians 5.21, sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made, parenthesis, legally constituted righteousness. Romans 5.19. One had thought this was plain enough for any who professed to bow to Scripture, yet there have been those who, doing manifest violence to the Greek, parenthesis, see Bagstead as inner inner, have insisted that it should be rendered one obedience what they limited to Christ's willingness to be crucified. As though anticipating this very perversion in Philippians 2.8, the Spirit has expressively declared that Christ became obedient unto death, not merely in death. Death was the final act of his obedience, referring us back to all the previous virtues and duties of his righteous walk. Just as Jehovah's promise and even to Whorehairs will I carry you, Isaiah 46.4, does not exclude God's sustaining grace in youth and manhood, so obedient unto death does not exclude the vicarious obedience of Christ's life. In like manner, justified by his blood, Romans 5.9, was the climax or consummation of the complete satisfaction which Christ offered to God. Let us now briefly consider D is typification. The double value of Christ's word was shattered forth as soon as sin entered the world. See Genesis 3.21. Two things are to be noted there. To procure those skins, blood must be shed, life must have been taken. Very, very striking was this. The first blood ever spilled on this earth was shed not by the hand of man, but by the hand of God. The first life taken in this world was not Abel's parenthesis, as many suppose, but that of sins and sacrifices. Their blood pointed forward to that of Christ, which cleanseth the believer from all sin. But more, the skins taken from those slain animals clothed Adam and Eve, thereby foreshadowing that robe of righteousness, Isaiah 61.10, with which the believer is covered. The name of Christ not only cancels the sin, it supplies in the place of that which it has canceled its own everlasting excellency. We cannot have its nullifying power only. The other is the sure concomitant. So was it with every typical sacrifice in the law. It was stricken, but as being spotless, it was also burned on the altar for a sweet-smelling Savior. That Savior ascended as a memorial before God. It was accepted for, and its value was attributed or imparted to him who had 
thought the vicarious system. If, therefore, we reject the imputation of righteousness, we reject sacrifice as revealed in Scripture, for Scripture knows of no sacrifice whose efficacy is so ex exhausted in the removal of guilt as to leave nothing to be presented in acceptableness before God. How beautifully was the imputation of the perfect righteousness of Christ to all whom he represented typified by what is recorded in Psalms 132.2. The costly and fragrant ungent which was poured out upon Aaron's head and which ran down his beard descended to the very skirts of his clothes. So the merits of our great high priest have passed to and upon all who are members of his mystical body. Again, when Aaron, parenthesis, as, as the representative, presented the names of the children of Israel before God, he did not barely present them, but he bore their names on his breastplate engraved on precious stones. Exodus 28:17:20. thereby adumbrating as far as earthly things can the splendid and exalted nature of the Redeemer's righteousness in which we are presented to God. Let the reader carefully and prayerfully ponder the wonderful incident portrayed in Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. There we behold a brand plucked out of the fire, verse 2. Observe particularly the two things done for him and to him. For the command is, take away the filthy garments from him, verse 4, figuring the removal of our sins. Secondly, send a fair mitre upon his head and clothe him with garments, verse 5, embezzling that vicarious and immaculate righteousness of Christ, which is not only unto, but also upon all them that believe. Romans 3.22 E. It's imputation. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Romans 4.5 Here again the enemies of the truth have fought hard to rob God's children of the comfort and assurance with the blessed teachings this chapter is designed to give them. Many have argued that God imputes to faith itself an intrinsic value which he accepts in lieu of perfect obedience to his law. But this is a most horrible perversion. Faith is an emptying thing which causes the pauper to gladly receive God's gracious gift and possesses no more merit than does the appeal of a beggar for charity. The his faith is counted for righteousness does not mean in the stead of, for the Greek preposition is EIS, and not anti, and signifies unto, as in Romans 10.10, 10, what the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Our surety gave full satisfaction to the law, but we are not credited with this by God's gracious invitation until we have faith in Christ. The righteousness of God by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, Romans 3.22. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth, Romans 10.4. Therefore is this righteousness also called the righteousness of faith, Romans 4.13. It is denominated the righteousness of God because God required, ordained, provided, accepted, and imputed it. It is the righteousness which exalts God's justice, magnifies his law, manifests his grace, and displays all his awful and lovely attributes in their full luster. It is designated the righteousness of Christ, 2 Peter 1.1, because he wrought it without the cooperation of his creatures. It is the righteousness of faith because faith apprehends it. <clears throat> From the way in which certain men have spoken of the imputation of righteousness 
Many have deemed them orthodox on this vital subject, but their blank denial of the invitation of Christ's righteousness thoroughly exposes their heterodoxy to all who bow to the authority of the Holy Writ. That righteousness must be imputed to them, Romans 4.11. What righteousness? Whose righteousness? The only possible scriptural answer is the perfect satisfaction which Christ rendered to all the demands of the law and which God places to the credit of every true believer in him. So truly is Christ's righteousness placed to their account, it is said to be upon all them that believe, Romans 3.22. Such persons actually possess it. They wear it as their robe, Isaiah 61.10. That we may be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Yes, in him as our proxy and head, and thus because he wrought out a justifying righteousness not only in our nature but in our name, not only as our benefactor but as our representative. In the Lord, parenthesis, not in themselves, shall all the seeds of Israel be justified, Isaiah 45:25. In the Lord Jesus, believers have a righteousness without spot or blemish, perfect and all-glorious, a righteousness which has not only expiated all their sins, but satisfied every requirement of the law's precepts. That I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, Philippians 3, 9, and 10. God's imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer is not in esteeming him to be righteous when he really is not so, nor is it a naked pronunciation of any one to be righteous without a just and sufficient foundation for the judgment of God declared therein. God pronounces none righteous who are not so. Nor is it a transfusion of Christ's righteousness unto those who are to be justified, so that they should be inherently righteous thereby. No, it is a divine and legal grant whereby God, out of his mere love and grace, on the simple consideration of the whole mediation of Christ, makes an effectual donation of a real and true righteousness, even that of Christ himself, unto all who believe, and so accounting it as theirs on his own gracious act, as not only to absolve them from all sin, but granting them the right to eternal life and the title to an everlasting inheritance in heaven. The meritorious obedience of Christ is so truly transferred to believers that they are called the righteous, Matthew 25:40. Surely the Christian has cause to say, My mouth shall show forth thy righteousness, thy salvation, all the day, Psalm 71:15. The one being founded upon the other, the latter deriving its origin from the former. There could be no salvation without a proper, real, law-fulfilling righteousness. Chapter 18, The Atonement, Its Effects. Having dwelt at length upon the principal results which the satisfaction of the mediator has secured, we turn now to look at some of its leading effects. The distinction we have in mind is not very clearly intimated by these two terms, so we must define what we intend by their use. In treating of the results, we have almost, parenthesis though not quite, confined our attention to the objective uh, external benefits which Christians derive from the work of their great high priest. Here we desire to point out the subjective or internal blessings which accrue to us from it. In this chapter, we shall endeavor to take up and follow out in fuller detail what was briefly touched upon in chapter 12, division 2, where, under the application of the atonement, we mention the Spirit regenerating. That aspect of truth which is now to be before us has received a scant notice even by many who wrote 
most helpfully upon the true nature and character of the satisfaction of Christ. There has been a sad failure to duly hold the balance of truth. Not a few have so stressed the legal results secured by our Savior's sacrifice and have so failed to proportionately emphasize the experimental effects which it has purchased that it is greatly to be feared multitudes have been deceived in the supposing that they had a saving interest therein when in fact they lack the scriptural marks of those who have passed from death to, to life. Christ died to save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21, not only from the guilt and penalty of them, but also from their pollution and power. It is because there has been such a one-sided calling on the faith without an equal insistence for repentance, and because there has been such an emphasis laid upon the grace which is revealed in the gospel without a proportional exposition of its holiness, that ground has been given for the enemies of the truth to charge the gospel with immoral tendencies to affirm that it encourages careless living and releases men from the due performance of their duties, that it is unfriendly to the producing of good works. And the deplorable thing is that the lives of many who profess to have been saved by grace through the righteousness of Christ have tended to confirm their contentions until not a few who have had dealings with professing Christians have said, parenthesis, and with much cause, if that is what Christianity produces, I want nothing to do with it. It needs to be loudly affirmed, trumpeted forth from every orthodox pulpit in the land, that the meditorial work and sufferings of the Lord Jesus not only obtained for God's people redemption from the penal consequences of their sin, but has also secured their personal sanctification. Well did Thomas J. Crawford say in his splendid work, The Doctrine of Holy Scripture Respecting the Atonement, 1874, in speaking or thinking of the salvation which Christ has purchased, there are many who seem to attach to it no further idea than that of mere deliverance from condemnation. They forget that deliverance from sin, the cause of condemnation, is no less important blessing comprehended in it. Assuredly, it is just as necessary for fallen creatures to be delivered from the pollution and moral impotency which they have contracted as it is to be exempted from the penalties which they have incurred, so that... When reinstated in the favor of God, they may at the same time be made capable of loving, serving, and enjoying Him forever. And in this respect, the remedy which the gospel reveals is fully suited to the exigencies of our sinful state, providing for our complete redemption from sin itself, as well as from the penal liabilities it has brought upon us. Nay, it would seem as if the former of these deliverances, that is to say, our deliverance from sin itself, were represented that in some passages of scriptures as a grand and ultimate consummation of redeeming grace to which the latter, though in itself in this scene is precious and important, is preparatory. Witness these plain and forceful declarations. He died for all that they who live should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto him who died for him for them and rose again, second Corinthians five fifteen. Christ also loved the church and gave himself forth that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, and that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, Ephesians 5, 25, 27. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works, Titus 2, 14. The blood of Jesus who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot unto God should purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, Hebrews 
These statements seem to indicate that our redemption from the guilt and penal consequences of sin was intended to be the means to an ulterior end, and that end being our personal sanctification. Certain it is that the inestimable blessings of justification and sanctification are represented in the Word of God as inseparable results of the Savior's mediation. Nor ought we to have any difficulty in apprehending how the satisfaction of Christ in obtaining for us the form of blessing should thereby secure our attainment of the latter. For our redemption by the blood of Christ binds us to his service as a purchased or peculiar people. Ye are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20. Furthermore, it has, parenthesis, as we have shown in chapter 12, procured for the redeemed the grace of the Holy Spirit, which he shed on us abundantly, Titus 3, 6, and by which his purchased people are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. The sanctifying power of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus is practically displayed in and by the character and conduct of true believers. There is as marked a difference between the children of God and the children of this world as there is between light and darkness. There is a real distinction outwardly manifested between the blood-bought and the blood-washed people of Christ and those whose iniquities are not purged as there is between life and death. Even in this life, according to the measure of their growth in grace, those who have been born again are witness to the present efficacy of Christ's satisfaction. Still more, so will they be in the life to come when they are freed from these infirmities and blemishes which now cleave to them. Never then, parenthesis, to quote again from T. Crawford, was there a more unfounded calumny than the assertion that personal holiness is disparaged or dispensed with in the scheme of our redemption. So far from being so, it is magnified and honored. True, it is not the foundation on which we are called to build, but it is the prominent part of the stately edifice for the erection of which that foundation has been laid. It is not our remedy, but it is the completion of the actual cure which that remedy is designed to accomplish. It is not in any respect or in any degree the means of salvation, but it is one of the most essential and most precious elements of salvation itself. What is the salvation which Christ has purchased for his people? Of what does it consist? What are its prime elements? Someone answers, deliverance from everlasting burnings which our sin justly deserved. True, yet that is only one part of the answer. A valid title to everlasting bliss in heaven, says another. Equally true, yet that also fails to cover all the ground. What about the present? What is the precious portion which the redeemed enjoy even now? Or suppose we put it another way. Many profess to have been saved by Christ, yet though quite sincere in their professions, when measured by the scripture it is evident that they are mistaken. How then may the writer and reader be sure that he is not mistaken? Who are the legitimate claimants of this privileged state? Salvation is an experience, a personal experience which has begun in this life. And it is this we shall now seek to describe. Number one is emancipation. If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. John 8:36. Free from what? First, from the power of indwelling sin. Not that the sinful nature is eradicated or even slain, but that the heart is delivered from its dominion, being now made free from sin. Romans 6:22. That which was once loved is now hated. The, those solicitations which were gladly heeded are now resisted. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. None have been made arise unto salvation, 2 Timothy 3.15. 
unless there has been implanted in their hearts a fallout respect for God. And the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, Proverbs 8.13. And by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil, Proverbs 16.6. The heart of a saved person is set upon pleasing God. Second, the Christian is delivered from the power of the world. The friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God, James 4.4. The friendship of the world consists of indulging worldly lust, following worldly vanity, fellowshipping with worldlings. It is for the heart to find its satisfaction in the perishing things of time and sense. From this, the grace of God delivers its favorite subjects by fixing their heart upon one who is altogether loving. Before Christ saves him, a man seeks happiness in the pleasures, honors, or riches of the world. But when he delivered from this present evil world, Galatians 1, 4, his affections are drawn into things above. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, 1 John 5, 4. The heart of a saved person finds its delight in God. Third, the Christian is delivered from the power of the devil. For this person did Christ leave heaven to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, Isaiah 60. That's one. And when the Spirit of God applies the gospel and power to the heart, then he is that individual delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Colossians 1.13 It was in time past that Christians were walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. When Christ saves the soul, he breaks Satan's chains, delivers his captive, and brings him into the place of liberty. True, the devil still tempts, harasses, and wounds the Christian, but destroy him or take him prisoner again he cannot. Concerning all God's children, it is written, they overcame him, for emphasis, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 12:11. The heart of a saved person is occupied with serving God. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, Romans 8:4. The first part of this verse has been before us in previous chapters. The second half is what we will now consider. Here we have described those unto whom God imputes the righteousness of Christ. It is by these marks that they may be clearly identified. They walk not after the flesh, they walk after the spirit. A course of godly living, a spiritual behavior, is both the inseparable concomitant of union with Christ and an infallible evidence thereof. The walk is that which is open to the observation of others and is plainly seen to them. It is not any particular act which is here specified, but the general course and uniform terror of the life that is referred to. Who walks not after the flesh? The principle of evil is still within, active, powerfully opposing, Galatians 5.17. Nevertheless, the Christian has been freed from its dominion so that it is no longer the controlling power in his heart and life. The rest of God's children offend in many things, James 3.2. Yet the prayer of the heart is, Order my steps and thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Psalm 119.133 Sometimes real saints have sad falls into outward and open sins, yet they do not continue therein, but are brought to repent of and forsake them. To walk after the flesh is to follow a course of self-will, self-pleasing, self-gratification. Isaiah 53.6 And this no saved person does or can do. They walk after the Spirit. This gives us the positive side. For when grace works within the heart, the subject is enabled to overcome evil with good. When God saves the sinner, he is not only so far delivered from the power of indwelling sin that his walk, his regular course of conduct, is no longer controlled by fleshly principles and lustings, 
but he is also enabled to live a spiritual and godly life. Christians are not only effectually taught to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, but also to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, Titus 2.12. To walk after the Spirit is to respond to the promptings of that new nature received at regeneration, as it is to be controlled by the new and unworldly principles. It is for a person to be dominated by the Holy Spirit so that he loves God, serves God, and glorifies God. How this is brought about, we shall now see under number two, regeneration. As we wish to be as concise as possible, we shall here limit ourselves to one aspect of this miracle of grace, namely the Holy Spirit, reversing that depraved state of soul spoken of in Romans 8, 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. When God renews his people, he deals directly with the will, powerfully bringing it into conscious subjection to his will. There is what may be called a transfer of the moral law from the tables of stone to the fleshly tables of the heart. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in the heart, Hebrews 8.10. God secures the intelligent acquaintance of the Christian with his law and cardio acquiescence in it. But let it be emphatically affirmed that this transfer is not of such a nature that the law of God is no more to be found outside and above the will of the Christian. At regeneration, the law of God does not disappear as an authoritative code of duty because it has become the desire of the Christian's heart and the purpose of his will to please God. Not so. That which the Holy Spirit has secured is a changed heart which lives in the recognition of God's authority and is able to say, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, Romans 7.22. Instead of salvation, having freed its subject from subjection to God, from obedience to him, from obligation to keep his laws, it has subdued his enemies against God's law and bestowed a love for it, a love that finds expression not only in enduring words but in practical submission to the authority of the ruler of heaven and earth. It is at this very point that the modern Antonians have error. Infected by that spirit of lawlessness which is so strife in the world and misled by an erroneous conception of the nature of spiritual liberty, they have insisted that Christians are entirely delivered from the claims of God's law. They suppose that an inward concept of the holiness of his commands presents a higher ideal of spiritual freedom than subjection to an external code. But, but the reverse is the fact. The withdrawal of objective law is really the denial of responsibility, and liberty is infringed when responsibility is infringed. Spiritual liberty is not the power to do as we please, that is licentiousness, but the power to do as we ought. It is being delivered from the bondage of sin which prevented us from serving God. The true nature of spiritual liberty is clearly enough defined in Psalms 119.45, I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. When a sinner is regenerated, he is made willing, Psalm 110.3, to be under the law of God, to be in subjection to his maker. The obedience of the Christian is not that of a slave, for the law of God is within his heart and the character of a holy tendency, as well as standing over him with his commandments. Nor is his obedience the operation of a mere natural mental tendency or spiritual mechanism working out its own bias, as of a vessel languidly drifting with the stream. No, it is the obedience of a loving and loyal subject, adoring his king and saying, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? It is a renewed heart gladly owing the rightful authority and supremacy of its maker. And this is the highest ideal of liberty that can be framed. It is the liberty of heaven itself, for their God does not abdicate his throne, nor cease to issue his commands. Psalm 103, 20. 
It is equally vain to assert that a subjective view of the law, love in the heart dispensing with the need of external commands, presents a higher idea of grace. Grace is not a species of lawlessness or mercy dispensed by ignoring the claims of justice. Grace reigns through righteousness, Romans 5.21, and that at every stage. Not only has Christ met every claim of the law against his people, but by the workings of his Spirit he places in their hearts a new principle which causes them to cry, Oh, how I love thy law, Psalm 119.97. The triumph of grace is that it effects a reconciliation between the blatant rebel and the righteous governor of all and makes an insurrectionist a loyal subject. Well, might the apostle say, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law, Romans 3.31. Number 3, section 3, sanctification. This is another fruit of the cross of Christ. The Lord Jesus not only rendered the perfect obedience unto the law for justification of his people, but he also merited and procured for them those supplies to his spirit which were essential unto their satisfaction. To deliver us from the guilt of sin is an unspeakable mercy, Yet would it not be a perfect favor unless he also purged us from the venom of sins which has affected our nature. Had the believer been pardoned without being purified, 1 Peter 1.22, he had still been unfit to converse with God. But God not only satisfied his justice in the sacrifice of Christ, but also magnified his holiness by providing for the renewing of his people in his own image. Personal holiness is just as essential a part of salvation as is forgiveness. Therefore did the sanctification of our shield not only secure for his people perfect legal standing before God, but also provided for their perfect external fitness for his presence. To sanctify is to set apart unto, to dedicate, or to vote to God. For a polluted man is concerned, he must be purified, Francis both judicially and experimentally, before he is meet for the Lord's use, 2 Timothy 2.21. Note how Ephesians 5.26 sanctifies defined by cleanse. Now there is a double satisfaction pertaining to the question, judicial and experimental. Christ is a believer's satisfaction as truly as he is his righteousness. See 1 Corinthians 1.30, but unless such a birth statement be defined and amplified, it conveys no definite concept to us. The satisfaction of Christ is the meritorious cause of the Christian sanctification but the work of the Spirit is the efficacious cause thereof. Hence we read of the sanctification of the Spirit. Second Thessalonians 2.13 That takes place at the new birth when the regenerated soul is set apart unto God, separated from those dead in sin. That aspect of our experimental satisfaction is absolute and complete. But there is another side to the Christian's experimental sanctification, which is a relative or progressive, and which, because of sin indwelling us, is never perfected in this life. This practical, parenthesis, in contract, contrast from positional, and progressive, parenthesis, in contrast from absolute, sanctification consists of two branches, mortification and renovation. A complete summary of these is given to us in Titus 2.12. Their mortification is comprehended under two words, answering to the two tables of the law, denying ungodliness, which comprehends the first four commandments, denying worldly lust, which covers the last six commandments. Then that renovation which the grace of God produces is to live soberly, which respects ourselves righteously or justly in all our dealings with our neighbors in God being connection with God. When divine grace brings salvation to a person, 
His heart is inclined unto obedience, and he is made fruitful in his life unto the glory of God. Now the heart of the Christian is made holy by regenerating grace, purifying it from the pollution, parenthesis, not presence of sin, implanting a hatred of and a striving against it, and by renewing us after God's image. In that spiritual life which was communicated at the new birth, there is contained an embryonic form of all spiritual graces and fruits which by the operations of the Spirit through the Word are developed and matured. By the Spirit, the renewed heart is kept under the influences of efficacious grace, and is, it is disposed and enabled to fear the Lord, walk in his statutes, and be conformed to his law. The more the Christian feels his own utter inability to serve God acceptably, and the more earnestly and constantly he beseeches him to work in him, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, a clear evidence has he of his experimental and progressive sanctification, and in this way he is assured of his justification. As the Christian finds that he is becoming less and less disposed to confer with flesh and blood either his own wisdom or that of others, and more and more consults the Holy Scriptures because he is desirous of learning his duty as he denies self, takes up his cross, and seeks to follow Christ, as every first discovery of God's will commends his attention and fills him with the holy reverence as he is more ready, more cheerful, more determined in his obedience, as his supreme desire is really to glorify God and thus become the prevailing state of his heart and mind, then, though he is increasingly conscious of the plague of his own heart and mourns more deeply and frequently than ever his many failures, both of omission and commission, nevertheless it is evident that the work of the sanctification is advancing in his soul. The rule of our sanctification is God's written word, John 17:17. For by it alone does the Spirit work, forming in the saint those dispositions what it both promises and requires. The Holy Scriptures are the one rule by which all our conduct is to be regulated. Practical holiness is a personal conformity of heart and life to what God's word enjoins. The commandments of men, Matthew 15:9, are of no weight or value whatsoever. They're Touch not, taste not, handle not, close in 221 are to be resolutely refused. No creature is to be allowed to dictate unto the Lord's free man. Our one concern must be to obey, serve, and please God. To sum up this division, sanctification may be considered first as an act of God the Spirit, 1 Peter 1, 2, already completed. When the Christian is set apart unto God by his life-giving operation, by his begetting us with the words of truth, James 1, 18, from which root the fruits of practical holiness grow. Second, as a state of acceptance with God into which salvation brings us, 1 Corinthians 6.11. Third, as a growth and increasing conformity to God in heart, mind, and life, 2 Corinthians 7.1. Fourth, as a longing and as yet unrealized desire of panning after and praying for complete conformity to the image of God's Son, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Which desire is realized at the moment of the soul's entrance into heaven and consummated at the resurrection of his glorified body. Each and all of these four aspects of one sanctification are the fruits of Christ's satisfaction purchased for his people. By that perfect sacrifice which he offered unto God, the Lord Jesus procured for us all that we need for time and eternity, and he is only fully honored when we perceive that every gift, operation, blessing, and fruit of the Holy Spirit comes to us on the ground of the Redeemer's merit. And section four, the preservation. This, too, is another of the precious fruits produced by the tree of Calvary. By one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, Hebrew 10.14. Herein lies one of the main differences between the perfect satisfaction of Christ 
and the typical offerings under the law. The atonement made by Israel's high priest availed only for one year. Twelve months or later, it must needs be repleted. But the sacrifice of Christ was once for all. Its virtue and efficacy is eternal. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1, nor can anything ever separate his people from the love of God, Romans 8.35-39. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them, Hebrews 7.25. A perfect, unforfeitable, eternal salvation has Christ procured for his own. Yet on this point also we need to carefully remember that the Lord does not deal with us as sticks and stones, but as rational creatures, not as irresponsible atomatons, but as accountable beings. He preserves his people through means which he inspires them to use. He preserves in the path of practical godliness, not in a course of carnal carelessness. The hearts of believers are like gardens, wherein there are not only flowers, but weeds also, and as the former must be watered and cherished, so the latter must be curbed and nipped. If nothing but the dews and showers of God's promises fell on our hearts, though they tend to the nourishing of our graces, yet the weeds of corruption would grow with them, and in the end choke out them, unless they be nipped by the severity of the divine threatening. Although God has placed himself to secure those for whom Christ died, and that in the use of means, therefore, they cannot apostatize, nevertheless, he has plainly warned us that there is an infallible connection between sin and destruction, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and that the one must be avoided if the other is to be escaped. We must watch and pray if temptations are to be escaped from. We are kept by the power of God through faith, 1 Peter 1, 5. We are not only saved by faith at the outset of our spiritual career, but we are supported and sustained by it through all our consequent experience. The just shall live by faith, Hebrews 10.38. As it is by faith we enter that narrow way which leadeth unto life, so it must be by faith we walk all the journey through, for it is only through faith and perseverance that we inherit the promises, Hebrews 6.12. The life of the Christian, between his being delivered from hell and his actual entrance into heaven, is not a picnic, but a warfare. There is armor to be put on, weapons to be used, enemies to be vanquished, if the fight is to be won. Therefore are we bidden to make our calling and election sure, Second Peter 1.10, and that by adding to our faith virtue, knowledge, temperance, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Therefore are we required to show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, Hebrews 6.11. God calls his people into glory and eternal bliss by a path of self-denial and holy obedience. If we neglect our duties, there is no promise that God will perfect that which concerns us. They who deny not the flesh, who refuse not the friendship of the world, who press not forward along the highway of practical holiness, evidence that they have no spiritual life, no matter what their profession may be. But they who deny self, take up the cross and follow Christ, no matter how weak and unprofitable they may feel, are assured that he who has begun a good work in them will finish it, Philippians 1, 6. Chapter 19, the atonement, its extent. Sitting on the ground, which has already been carefully gone over, there really ought to be no need for a separate discussion of this phase of our subject. The question, for whom did Christ make satisfaction? For whose sins did he atone? Has been clearly anticipated and definitely answered in almost every aspect of our theme which has been before us. 
If we go back to the very foundation, namely the everlasting covenant, there we find that the Father promised the Son a specific reward, Isaiah 53, 10-12, upon his performance of the work assigned him. The Son perfectly accomplished that work, John 17, 4, therefore he must see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. If a single one of those for whom he died be not regenerated, justified, sanctified, and glorified by God, then the Father's promise to his Son would be nullified. The nature of Christ's satisfaction determines to a demonstration those who are the beneficiaries of it. First, it was a federal work. There was a legal oneness between Christ and those for whom he acted. The Savior stood as the surety, and if a single one whose debt he paid received not a full discharge from the law, then divine justice would be reduced to a part. Secondly, it was a substitutionary work. Christ acted not only on behalf of, but in the stead of, those who had been given to him by the Father, hence all whose sins he bore must of necessity have their sins remitted. God cannot punish twice, once the substitute and then again the subject. Third, it was penal work. Every requirement of the law, both preceptive and punitive, was fulfilled by Christ. Therefore, all for whom he acted must receive the reward of his obedience, which is everlasting life. Fourth, it was a priestly work. The sacrifice being accepted by God, its efficacy and merits must be imputed to all those for whom he offered it. The design of Christ's satisfaction, as made known in Scripture, reveals its scope. To suppose that the greatest and grandest of all God's work was without design would be to be guilty of blasphemous thoughts. That design was framed by infinite wisdom so that there can be no flaw or failure in it. That design is executed by omnipotence so that it is impossible to thwart it. What that design was has been shown in part in the ninth chapter of this series. It was not an indefinite and undefined one. Scripture has made known in plain and unmistakable terms that the meditorial work of Christ was in order to God's being magnified, the God-man glorified, and God's elect saved. The eternal Son of God became incarnate in order to save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21. But without reviewing any further, the preceding chapters let us now say why we deem it expedient to devote a separate chapter to the more specific stating and proving of what was has come before us previously in only a more or less incidental or subordinate way. It is because a right, parenthesis, scriptural view of this point is absolutely essential if God is to be honored and Christ is to be glorified to us therein. The enmity of the serpent against the seed of the woman has been inveterate throughout the ages and perhaps at no other one point has he so persistently attacked the glory of Christ. While it is impossible for Satan to either undo the finished work of the Savior or to destroy any of its fruits, yet he is permitted to misrepresent it, and nowhere has his subtlety been more exercised and manifested than in the means employed here. He has indeed appeared as an angel of light. His very attempts to discredit the satisfaction of Christ have been made under the guise of magnifying it, and that is why he has succeeded in getting many men reputed as orthodox to do some of his foul works for him. Perhaps it will enable most of our readers to grasp more readily what we have just referred to in the above paragraph if we frame the following question. What seems to have the greater tendency to exalt Christ? To say that he died because he desired and sought to make possible the salvation of all mankind or to say that he died only for God's elect, the little flock? Which seems to display the more compassion for the sinners? Which seems to bring out the more the value of his blood to say that it avails only for the few or to say that its merits are so infinite that every member of Adam's race would be redeemed did he or she put their trust in it. The very fact 
that every one of us would answer the question in the wrong way until we are taught aright from Scripture, not only evidences the worthlessness of carnal reasoning upon spiritual things, but also shows to what a terrible extent our minds have been poisoned by the venom of the serpent. If it can yet be clearly shown that in reality the wider view actually dishonors Christ, then the consummate guile and malice of the devil therein should be plainly apparent. Before exposing the futility of the above reasoning, let us prepare the way by giving other illustrations or examples of our inability to think aright where spiritual things are concerned. Does it not seem to us that a greater revenue of glory had occurred to God had sin never invaded his dominions and corrupted his his creatures? Yet he deemed otherwise, or else he had not suffered it so to be. Again, does it not seem to the Christian, every Christian, that he could glorify God more in this present life if the sinful nature were eradicated from his being? Yet if this were so, God would take the flesh completely out of our beings when he regenerated us. And does it not seem to many a reader that he or she could accomplish more for Christ if better health, different circumstances and surroundings, or more money were given to them by God? And so we might continue. The fact is that the wisest Christian is utterly incapable of thinking rightly about divine things until his thoughts are formed by Scripture. But coming now to a closer answering of the question raised above. First, many imagine the glory of God is exceedingly exalted by affirming that he truly desires the salvation of every member of Adam's fallen race and that they who teach that his free grace is restricted to the elect grievously dishonor his benevolence. Now, to maintain aright the glory of God, we must speak in the language of his word. Only that is glorious in God which he ascribes unto himself. Our inventions, though ever so splendid in our own eyes, are unto him an abomination, a striving to pull him down from his external excellency to make him altogether like us. John Owen. God is dishonored by that honor which is ascribed to him beyond his own prescription, Jerome. To assign unto God anything which he has not assumed is only to deify our own imaginations. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.